The Running the Bases podcast is back. We've been off for a year, but Coach and I are back. We got an opportunity to talk with Jeff Perlman, who just released his 10th book. It's called The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. Um, he was very gracious to come on the podcast, and we were excited to have him. And it's just a really great show. Um, I appreciate everyone who has been asking about the podcast and when we were coming back. I appreciate your patience. As if if this is their, your first time hearing the Running the Bases podcast, welcome. Hope you enjoy it. Um, we've got a whole archive of episodes going back all the way to 2014. And there's a lot of great interviews, a lot of great evergreen content. We've done several podcasts with Clayton Trudor, who's a great sports author. We talked to Jonathan Mayo at one point. So, But we recorded this with Jeff last week uh, before his book came out, uh, which came out on the 25th. And uh, so there's a couple of things that are going to already sound uh, a little past tense, but um, we hope you enjoy it. So let's go. Welcome to the Running the Bases podcast. I'm Tucker Wells, joined as always by Coach Jordan Bounds, and we are thrilled and, dare I say, honored today to be joined by none other than Mr. Jeff Perlman, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. Uh, what can I say? You you need no introduction, good sir, but we're thrilled to have you. Jeff, how are you doing? Uh, I am well. I'm definitely unworthy of that very nice introduction. No, you are. You are good, sir. I was I was talking with Coach before we uh, started recording here that you're, you're now one of the one-name authors that are oh come on oh yeah on on other podcasts that are out there it's it's now the perlman book that they talk about oh i'll take it i mean that could be good or bad because like you know they would say the manson murder so (laughs) it may not always be good (laughs) i don't think you always want to be the one day but i'll take it in this case thank you yeah yeah in this case it's all positive it's all on the up and up so um you've got a new book coming out the last folk hero the life and myth of bo jackson um, you've said on other, on other publishings, on your Twitter feed, on, uh, on, on interviews that I've read online that you think this is your best book. I do. I, um, it's definitely the most thorough. I interviewed the no- most number of people. I interviewed 720 people, which is a personal record. Um, I got really, really fortunate that the great, uh, Dick Shap, the late sports writer who wrote Bo Jackson's original autobiography in 1990, um, kept all his notes, audio tapes, et cetera, from that experience and donated them all to the Auburn Library. So I wound up with all of that. And it was just a real deep dive. So it, I, I'm very I'm very proud of it. I am. Yeah, it's excellent. We were we got to read the advanced copy and coach devoured it in two days. I was captivated by every game recap along the way. Your descriptions of the games that he played in were so rich and just exciting. Beyond the box scores. Oh, well, thank you so much. That's very kind of you. Um, and then and we can go a number of different directions here today. But um, I want to start with uh, what you just said. You you had the record number of interviews, over 700. Um, when you're starting this book, the process of writing this book, how do you compile your list of interview subjects? I mean, it's a pain. I uh, The first thing I always do when I decide on a subject is I go to eBay and I order every media guide I can find. So for Bo Jackson, that means Auburn. Then I found a program from, he played for the Memphis Chicks minor league baseball. I found that program. Um, you know, the Royals, the White Sox, the Angels, and then the Raiders. And I'll go through those media guides, name by name by name by name, create an individual file for each person. And not just athletes. So you're not just calling Marcus Allen and Howie Long. You're calling uh, ball boys, equipment managers, medical staff, anyone and everyone. Um, and you just sort of do that throughout. And then simultaneously, you're kind of building up a library of Bo Jackson articles, uh, Bo Jackson material. And so let's say you're reading an article and it talks about a time Bo Jackson ate at a restaurant and yelled at the waiter. I don't know. That didn't happen, but let's just say hypothetically, um, and it names the waiter, uh, you know, Jim Stevens, I'll find Jim Stevens, or at least try to find Jim Stevens. So before long, you have this enormous list of people you need to call and it can drive you crazy, but it's also, it's part of the fun of it all. It's really, honestly, it's like a treasure hunt. It truly is like a treasure hunt. Yeah. And is it something where you just, 
maybe when you're sitting down at first, you've got you and you've done that initial research. I have to assume that that other interview subjects that come along, it's sort of organic. It's like once you're actually out there in the field, do you find that one person leads you to another person you wouldn't have thought of? Oh, yeah. You said that perfectly. One interview leads to two, two leads to four, four leads to seven. You know, you'll talk to some guy and he'll say, you know, who you really need to talk to. Uh, blah, 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 blah. And I'll say, well, do you have his number? Oh, yeah. Or you get a lot. He's on Facebook, just Facebook. And do you go to Facebook or Instagram? And then he is and you DM the person. And oh, yeah. You know, when that really is helpful is when you're interviewing opponents and especially from high school, like, uh, you know, he when he was in Macadory High in Alabama, there was another arrival high school, Jess Lanier. And the first thing you try to do is find the old yearbook from Jess Lanier High School. And then you can start picking off people left and right. But maybe you go on Facebook and you find one guy who played catcher for Jess Lanier and he'll say, you know, he need to call Barry Stevens. He pitched against Bo or John Berkowitz. He was our third baseman. And before long, you have this long, long list of logs of interviews you've done. Right, right, right. And let me say you uh, and I, I'm not sitting here just trying to praise you or anything, but in uh, a lot of the situations and scenarios that you develop, uh, for instance, the, the early in the book when uh, Tampa Bay is trying to – they're courting him and uh, they, he goes on this fishing trip with uh, several of the players uh, afterwards. Yeah. But uh, it's not like one of them is talking – it's like you have the whole conversation with all of them there. That, that was nice. The, uh, oh, the- thank you. I mean, you get lucky like, um, like Steve Young, just as an example. Right, now right. I interviewed Steve Young. I knew Steve Young because I interviewed him for a book I wrote about the USFL. Right. And then, you know, he obviously Bo was drafted by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Well, I know Steve Young. So I call Steve Young and he has this amazing story about going to dinner with Bo right, and right. the owner of the Buccaneers. And Bo, when, when the owner leaves the table, Bo showing there's no way I'm effing signing here. Right. Um, <laughs> that was a great moment. So it's just a matter of calling and researching and digging and digging and digging. And you have to love that part of it. And it's actually, I really do. Oh, and I, I appreciate the fact that Steve Young said at that point, uh, well, my recruiting is over, you know, yeah, no, he knew. Yeah. He didn't even, cause the thing is like, he hated being the Buccaneers quarterback. Right. He hated playing for Tampa Bay. He said there was more talent in the USFL. So like, all right, the boss says I need to come for a lunch to try to recruit Bo Jackson. I'll come, but it doesn't mean I actually think he should play here. Yeah. Yeah. What, what was the, most difficult interview to get of the ones that you got? Oh man, there's so many. I mean, let me think for a minute. You know, like his high school, I mean, his college baseball coach, Hal Baird, um, I know has been sick and he took a while to get, but I got him. It's a lot of like, it's more, to be honest, the better question is like the difficult interviews you didn't get. Like, right. That was my, I made a really, one, yeah. I, yeah. Well, I made a really bad mistake, rookie mistake, which is, Pat Dye, his coach at Auburn, died early on in the process, and I had not yet called Pat Dye. And if you know someone is old or sick or whatever, you really need to call them first. That sounds simplistic, but it's really true. I got, I got really fortunate. Uh, his uh, his backfield mate at Auburn was a guy named Lionel James, Lionel Little Train James, who wound up having a long NFL career. And I interviewed Lionel. He was one of my best interviews. He was lovely. He was awesome. It took me forever to get him. He was hard to get. And he died a few months later. He's probably 60. It was really shocking. So, you know, you just, you, you fire away, you fire away, you fire. Away. I didn't get Bo. I mean, I sent a letter to Bo. I sent him a, my books. I wrote him a letter. He called me up. He was very kind. He was not a jerk at all. He said, I don't mind that you're writing this book, but I'm not going to help you. And I said, that's totally, you're right. I totally get it. And then you just kind of move on. Did you, was there any time you tried after that initial phone call with Bo and he gives it the blessing, but he says he's not going to help you. Did you reach out at any point during the writing process just to see if you could get him to corroborate anything? Well, here's what I would do every now and then I would find some, like, like I, just an example, I found a lot of really cool scouting reports of Bo Jackson, uh, like the Royals original scouting report of him or like the Yankees when they scouted him in high school, I found the scouting reports and I just sent them to him with a letter you know, Hey, it's just an honor writing about this, about you. If you ever want to talk, I think I wrote, if you ever want to talk or whatever, you know, here I am, but I generally respect the subject and he knew I was working on the book. He had my phone number, but, but I probably sent him three different documents, you know, three different letters. Hey, this is really cool. I thought you would like this. Hey, this is cool. I thought you'd like it. He's very, very guarded, very guarded and very private. So uh, you know, I never liked being that guy who's like, hey, 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 I know you didn't say, I know you didn't want to talk, but have it now, have it now, have it now. I give it one or two tries and then I say, okay, 
it's cool. I get the impression that he was kind of bored by the whole thing. You said, you know, uh, toward the end of the book that baseball and football were kind of boring to him. I think, I think the whole routine was not his bag. Like there are certain athletes and certainly certain many celebrities who live with the spotlight and playing sports pays off because you're in the spotlight and you're famous and you get attention and you get money and you get women and you get whatever in the eighties, you get drugs, you know, or whatever, the whole thing, you go to a club and they, they part the red sea for you. And he wasn't that guy. Like he was not doing this to get famous. He did it because he was a good athlete and he always had a certain, I can take this or leave it mentality to it all. You know, like when people are like, man, you should just play football or man, you should just play baseball. He basically like didn't care. Like not that he didn't care about playing. He didn't care what he thought about it. Like he didn't, I don't care that the Royals think I should stop playing football. I don't care that the Raiders want me to play football full time. I don't care that the media is bashing me. Like I just don't care. I don't care. I don't care about clubs. I'm not going out. I don't really care about my teammates. Like I have a couple of friends on the team kind of, but I don't need to keep in touch with them. I think it's interesting. Neither the Raiders nor the Royals had his phone number. So like when it was time to show up, they sent him a letter and they're like, there's Art Shell as the coach of the Raiders. And they're like, Art, is Bo going to report Monday? And his response would be like, yeah, I think Monday, Monday or Tuesday, <laughs> but maybe Wednesday. One of those days he's definitely coming. And he would show up eventually. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you something uh, about in the stories about Bo. Some of them are like the one you put in the introduction on the plane with Chicago. I, I don't want to give away your book. Uh, but That's fine. Are, are, it, some of them are obviously apocryphal. I mean, uh, yeah. is, is there one that was just one story that was just too apocryphal to make the cut that you wouldn't put in the book? Well, that's a good question. I wouldn't say like, in a way, I think the plain one is actually the best example. Yeah. Um, you know, he's on the white, he's on the white Sox late in his career. The white Sox are returning from California after a game against the angels. Uh, they're flying an American West jet and, uh, the plane catches on fire an engine catches on fire. And a bunch of the players look out the window and the wings on fire and, Tim Raines is like, holy blood. Everyone's praying and they think their plane is going down. And all of a sudden, the cockpit door opens and Bo Jackson walks out. And he's like, all right, everyone, stay calm, stay calm. Pilots have this under control. We're going to be okay. But then I heard from someone else. He didn't actually leave the cockpit. He entered the cockpit. And he said, I'm going to help them in the, play, in the cockpit. Like he ran <laughs> up to help them up the aisle to help. I don't know which one is true. So I actually used them both. And I thought they were the perfect example of the mythology of Bo. Like, did he run up to help the pilots? Did he run out to help his teammates? Either way, the story ends with something that was verified by a million people, which is they land, they make an emergency landing in Des Moines, Iowa, and um, they enter an empty airport at like three in the morning, and there's a uh, there's a kiosk with a with a keg of beer, and the, and the keg is locked. And Bo Jackson, who is preposterously strong, takes his hand, puts it around the, pot, the lock, pops off the lock and they all drink the beer from the keg. Right. Which is awesome. It's my kind of teammate right there. If I had ever played oh, on, a, on a sport. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Free beer. The free beer teammate is the guy you want. Did he let Kevin Sizer drink any beer? Ah, <laughs> good one. Sizer was not with the White Sox when this happened. Oh, okay, was only okay. with his when right. he, you were alluding to the, the infamous Bo Jackson beating the snot out of Kevin Sizer, right, which is right. well, he kind did. of a magical period. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, you've written other books, um, other biographies about uh, larger-than-life sports figures. One in particular was the Barry Bonds book, which is excellent, and it's called "Love Me, Hate Me." Um, if you can, like, what what were what were some of the similarities in writing this book about Bo Jackson and then writing that book about Barry Bonds? Because you have Bonds, who is larger than life but almost completely hated, whereas Bo Jackson is much more romantic in the way that we seem to remember them, those who follow sports and enjoy sports. Well, it's sort of interesting because, um, you know, Bonds, when I wrote about him, was so active, which is drastically different because when an athlete is active, teammates are oftentimes very nervous about talking about him, you know, because there are repercussions and you still work for a team. So if you're, you're at the second baseman for the San Francisco Giants trying to hang on to your career, you don't want to piss off Barry Bonds and you don't want to piss off the team. So you deal with a lot more trepidation when writing about someone like Bonds. Um, I mean, the things that are similar, the number one thing that I, I have definitely learned in journalism is 
Um, there's a reason for one's behavior and it's your job as a biographer to figure it out. And Bonds, who is surly and standoffish and very unlikely was a player, was kind of raised as a wild animal by his his dad, uh, Bobby Bonds, and his you know kind of godfather, Willie Mays. He was raised without empathy. He was raised to mistrust. Like those are the things. And and Bo, poor single mom, one of actually eleven kids in Bessemer, Alabama, severe stutter, held back in elementary school, uh, went to school wearing either socks without shoes or his sister's hand-me-down shoes. Like he's a surly guy. Like he is a surly guy. He is not one who trusts easily. He's standoffish. And sometimes you could think, ah, oh, kind of what a jerk, or why can't he be warmer? But you look about where he came from. And then you go to Auburn in the 80s, and it's this, you know, 99% white school. And you know you're not supposed to date the white women there. This is a re- recurring theme among African-American players I spoke to. You're not supposed to date the white women at Auburn. But every Saturday, they love you. Everyone loves you. All the white fans love you. And they're cheering for you, and they're praising you, and they want you to sign their autograph. You just can't date their date or marry their daughters. That's off limits. And I think those kind of things mess with the person and they build something in you. And I just think a lot of those African-American athletes coming up during that time period rightly have a chip on their shoulder because they feel used to a certain degree. Right, right. Sure. I mean, the 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 description you have in the book about this, uh, the Confederate Day Parade at Auburn, I, I feel crazy. like. I, yeah, I feel like I'm reading about something from another planet. Um, yeah. It's Wait, it's insane. They actually, they literally had a parade at the Cap Alpha Fraternity, I think it was, where the brothers would dress up as Confederate soldiers. Their girlfriends would dress up in antebellum dresses and they would recruit local African-American kids to be slaves. And they would march in a parade. And that took place at Auburn. And the president of Auburn at the time, a bunch of uh, black students complained to him and he, he was a Kappa Alpha alum. And he said, I don't see what the big deal is. Unbelievable. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, I, you know, my, my, my formative years were um, the 90s. And um, I'm unfortunately just outside of seeing Bo play professionally. Did you ever see him in person? Did you ever cover him for Sports Illustrated as well while you were? No, because his last year of being an athlete was my last year of college. Oh, okay. All right. I never did, but I had, um, I would tell you this, I had his posters on my wall and my, uh, my sophomore year at the university of Delaware, I was an RA, so a resident assistant for my hallway. And, um, I don't know why I tell this, but it's true. All the RAs had to have on their doors. Like they had to make a thing where a chart where it says, uh, Jeff is sleeping. Jeff is a class. Jeff is somewhere, you know, away for the weekend, just so the other students knew where you were. And I cut out the Bo Jackson with him doing all the different sports and I had it as Bo knows Jeff is sleeping. Bo knows Jeff is so and so. Super corny and not even that funny, but kind of fun for the time. I'm going to interject here. I was my formative years were in a different century, I think. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I did see Bo play once, and it was uh, by and I can't mention the person's name because I haven't okayed it with him. But it, it was a, uh, a former. He played baseball for me, but he went on to play at Auburn for exactly the same years that Bo was there, was a friend of Bo's, a good friend. And uh, Bo later on gave him his tickets uh, for in Kansas City. And this player, former player of mine, and I went there. They were as different as night and day. The player that I coached was from a very affluent family, white, uh, completely different background, had nothing but positive things to say about Bo the whole time. Uh, and and I realized it's so much of the book, particularly before the hip injury, uh, it seems like most of the players are, really don't have a very good uh, opinion of Bo one way or another. I don't know. I, I actually feel like the thing is, like, he was standoffish. Like, right. he really was. He was guarded, and he— he kept to himself and he wasn't a, he wasn't a selfish person. He was just a guarded person and he wasn't the extracurriculars of it all did not really interest right. him. And he said himself, he slept around a lot in college. He got that all out of his system. By the time he married Linda, he was, he just wanted to be a dad and a husband and he wanted to go fish and he wanted to hunt. I mean, one of his Royal teammates, I actually wrote about him for the fir- at first cause he was on the 86 Mets was a catcher named Ed Hearn. Right. right. My first book was about the 86 Mets. And Ed's a good friend of mine. And Ed was talking about just, he loved Bo and he would go to Bo's house in Kansas City 
and they would just shoot bow and arrows in the backyard for hours. <laughs> and, you know, but like, I mean, Bo also like, again, he would, he would set up a bow and arrow in the clubhouse and he'd be shooting bows across the clubhouse. Right. Didn't you say and, the uh, one team complained about him or something, or the darts that were going through the clubhouse or something saying it was dangerous? Yeah. Cause it's insane. Yeah. It's actually insane to set up a bow and arrow <laughs> in the clubhouse. It, it's beyond any logic. And like, I think one thing about Bo that's kind of interesting is no one ever would confront him. Like he was intimidating and they were nervous about confronting him. So, um, he was not good about signing autographs for teammates. In fact, he was terrible about right, signing right, autographs. Right. For teammates. He was not good with the media. He made the media wait and wait and wait. He didn't like talking, which is fine. This is right. But he was not a, he, he wasn't warm and fuzzy. Like George Brett was very endearing to cover. Bo Jackson was not George Brett. On, on that note, when did you know in, in that you wanted to write this book? I mean, and kind of, it's a two part question. When did you know you wanted to write a book about Bo Jackson? And was this something that you brought to your agents and publishers or was more of a collaborative idea that came, came to be? Yeah. I didn't have, I didn't have like an aha struck by lightning moment. It was my idea. I brought it to my agent. My agent actually wasn't sure about it. And I was like, no, nah, I think this is good. I think there's something here. I think he's mysterious. He's iconic. There's a certain, if you're of a certain generation, and also this is the nostalgia, like I would say nostalgia moves the times, you know, like I don't think you could do a book now about Bob Gibson or Tom Seaver and sell a million copies because a lot of those fans sort of aren't around anymore. You know, like you certainly couldn't write about Mickey Mantle or Joe DiMaggio anymore and expect to sell a gazillion copies because nostalgia moves with the time, you know, and like I'm 50. So for my age, Bo Jackson is super nostalgic and I um, I just I love nostalgia. I love sports and nostalgia. I started thinking about who I loved as a kid. I started thinking about the posters on my wall in my room, and Bo Jackson. I had two of them, so I just sort of one day was like, "What do you think about Bo Jackson?" My agent was like, "I don't know," but then I was like, "I do know. I want to do this." And that's it. <laughs> yeah. That's good. And as long as one of you knew, I guess that means that we get the as book long now. As the guy who yeah. well, <laughs> it better be the guy who has to write one hundred fifty thousand words. He better be the one who knows. <laughs> right. 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 Um, you talk extensively in interviews and on your own podcast, which by the way is excellent. It's two writers sling and yang. Um, find it wherever you get your podcasts. If it's Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google play. Um, but you talk about, you have to read every article. You have to really do your research, deep dive into your research. And that for you, it's about a two year process for, for all the books that you've done or has yeah. that process gotten shorter over time? No, definitely not. Give or take two years, two and a half. It's usually, I mean, really, it's it's two and a half to three years from the time I start working on it to the time it comes out. But the the work period is about two years. And and in that in that work period, then which which aspect of it is your favorite part? You kind of alluded to you you love doing the the research, but is that is that at the top of the most enjoyment along the journey? I'll tell you my my favorite thing by far is. All right, like I always talk, a friend of mine, a colleague of mine named John Wertheim has written a bunch of books. He's a good friend of mine. We talk about this all the time. I would always take a trip to Bessemer, Alabama over a trip to fill in the city, Birmingham, Chicago, Atlanta, Milwaukee, any. I love flying into an airport, getting like on the road, stopping, getting some egg sandwich and a drink and just driving to places I've never been. And knowing I'm about to go on an adventure and maybe it's three days in the basement of a library going through microfilm, which I did. Maybe it's knocking on doors on Bo Jackson street, which I did. I mean, one of my favorite moments from this book, I went to where his house was. The house was torn down. It hasn't been there in years. There's been no other house there. It's an abandoned lot with a bunch of like broken glass and trash, but there were a bunch of bricks from the foundation of the house. And I took one of the bricks and I called my wife and I said, look, I have a brick from Bo Jackson's house. And she said, what the hell are you going to do with that? And I said, you don't understand. And then I called my friend, I called my friend, Jonathan, I, who wrote, he's written a million great biographies, including a, an Ali biography. That's awesome. And I said, do you think it's weird that I took the brick? And he goes, not at all, not at all. <laughs> and I got to the airport and I had to go through the metal detector with the brick. And they're like, uh, sir, what is that? 
And I'm like, it's a brick from Bo Jackson's house. And they're like, you're not allowed to fly with a brick. And then like Marge comes over from TSA. And I'm explaining to Marge in the Atlanta airport that I have this brick from Bo Jackson's house. And she's like, all right, go on through. So literally on my desk right now is a brick from Bo Jackson's house. Wow. Uh, you, you met the guy at the, uh, that lived on the end of the street, too, who was that seemed like a real piece of local color in the book. Oh, yeah. Symphony. His name was Symphony. Yeah, that's right. He, that's um, right. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I can't even like here's what I love. I swear to God, I mean this. I grew up in a very small, very sheltered, 99 percent white upstate New York town. And this job has taken me so many places. And I'm on Bo Jackson Street. And it's 100% African-American. Um, it's poor. It's dirt road. It's crime-ridden, et cetera, all that stuff. And I'm just knocking on doors by myself, talking to people. And what you learn in this job, if you do it long enough, is number one, people are people. Number two, people do love telling their stories. Number three, people are often flattered if you tell their stories. And number four, almost all the stereotypes you've heard about different groups across the board are nonsense. And if you break it down, people are just people. And I freaking love walking streets and talking to people, like love and meeting Symphony. He was a lovely guy in a dilapidated house on the end of the street. He was burning his trash in his yard, which isn't cool. But like, he didn't have the money for the trash payment, right, so he right. just burned his trash. I get it. Like, life is hard. And I just love talking to people like that. I really do. Let me ask something about your, your process of writing. Uh, Tucker's asked a couple of things, but uh, do you start off with a basic outline and start making uh, you know, more going to different levels with the outline? Or do you have uh, kind of ever let the, the flow hit you? you know, uh, do you always know where you're going next? No, zero. Okay. I never have an outline at all. No, oh, okay. I, um, I respect You that. write a book. I just don't. I just don't. And it doesn't mean, obviously, like, there's a chronology element to it. Sure. So he was born, he lived, he played sport, you know, went to Auburn, right, right, right. went to, so you have that. So that's your, in your head outline, but I never branch out anything. And, and what I kind of dig is like, okay, I write about Auburn and going into this book, I had no idea about Greg Pratt, his teammate who transferred fullback transferred from right. Tennessee state died of heat stroke. It's not mentioned in Bo's autobiography. But I start digging into it, and I'm fascinated by this loss, this this moment of loss for Bo Jackson. And all of a sudden, you're, you're, this chapter takes a huge right turn into the life of Greg Pratt. And then you come way back, back to your chronology again. And you could take another turn. You're writing about race and whatever, politics at Auburn. So you take this wide turn, and then you come back, and you just sort of go with it. I just roll with it. It doesn't always work. Sometimes it works. But I, I have never been an outliner. Do you? How do you edit? Uh, I think one of the things I really like uh, in your style is that you have uh, multiple word metaphors. Uh, you describe Brian Bosworth as an overhyped steroid beanbag, and uh, th- this is this is Shakespearean. I mean, this is like putting uh, several different descriptions together to uh, to create one metaphor. Maybe not quite as good as uh, a hog's heart on a fence post, but uh, oh, which is. <laughs> Maybe the best. Wait, can we just talk about that for a minute? Sure, Someone said ahead. to me earlier today. Someone said to me, um, "Why do you write about penises so much?" And I was like, <laughs> "I don't ask for it; it just comes to me." And like when Steve Sachs, second baseman for the White Sox, is playing with the White Sox early on, he had been with the Yankees a year before. The New York media comes up to him and he's like, "Guys, guys, Bo Jackson's penis is like the arm of a young black boy holding a holding a plum." I thought. <laughs> That is Shakespearean. That is freaking poetic. And then later he described it as a hog's heart on a fence post, which is amazing. Um, My son is 16. His name's Emmett. And he's always like, dad, too many analogies. And he's actually right. Too many metaphors. You got to cut him back a little. So I'm going to tell him you compared me to Shakespeare and I'll feel better about myself. Good. Look, I, I, I like it. It's, it's one of my favorite part or uh, elements of style in your writing. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. My son disagrees strongly. Yeah, he's 16. What does he know? Yeah, what does he know? What does he know? Yeah. Right. Wanted to talk about, um, you, you list a, a, a whole host of names in your acknowledgments for this book. When you're in the process of writing and, and, and you, you have your main your main thread to, to steal from Bill Simmons, you've got your highway that you're traveling on, and then you can take a departure. You can talk about Greg Pratt. You can talk about politics at Auburn University. 
in, in your team that's helping you edit and, and pull this all together, who, who do you trust the most or who do you go to first to say, hey, I'm, I'm stuck. I have block. I think I'm going too wide here. Who, who is that person in your in your coach's box? Oh, my wife, 100 percent. My uh, who's also a writer. Yeah, she's also a writer. Um, she's a she's a parenting writer. She's really good. She's read all my books. She's edited all my books. I trust her judgment. Her comments are always funny. She prints it out and she reads it on paper. And there always be questions like circles with words like stop, like stop doing this <laughs> or stop using this word or I'm going to kill myself or like, and she's really good. She's really harsh. And she's the one thing like that's hard with a book is um, you word repetition. And, you know, like I, there are certain words, I think most writers go to certain words. And for me, I use hence just as an example, hence a lot and myriad. I use those two words a ton. And I'll write a book and then I'll go through the word. I'll do a find for like hence. And there'll be like 47 henses in the book. And I'm like, that does not work. I need to get that down to four or, you know, myriad. And she's really good at that. And she's also honest, you know, she's also like, this is good. This isn't good. And so she's very important. And I, have a, I have a group of friends, a friend of mine named Michael Lewis, not Moneyball Michael Lewis, who reads everything and is very honest. You need people, you need people who are going to be honest with you and, know you as a person so they know how to sort of not make you feel like you're a loser while being honest in their criticism yeah difficult balance to strike with a lot of my friends so oh yeah yeah um just in general um how how long was the first draft of the book how many pages uh i don't do pages these words it was oh words yeah sorry it was probably 180 and i had to get it down to 150 which wow is is terrible yeah it's not fun (laughs) You just do it. It sucks though. You know, what's funny. We always say in this house, like every now and then we'll, we'll, you go through your closet and you get rid of a bunch of shirts. Right. And you, you're like, you'll give them the goodwill and you'll be like, ah, oh, I don't know. Should I get rid of this shirt or shouldn't I, should I love the shirts? I got it at a Jets game in 92. I should keep it. And you sweat over it. And then you get rid of the shirt and you literally never think of that shirt again. That's kind of what it's like to cut words out of a book. Right. Right. Which, by the way, my 1994 New York Rangers Stanley Cup champions hasn't seen the light of day in 10 plus years, but I will never get rid of it. I know, but you know what's going to happen? One day you're going to die and everyone's going to be going through your crap. And they're going to be like, <laughs> oh, this. And they're just going to chuck it in the fire or something. And be like, well, we don't need <laughs> right. this. Why right. are there yellow stains in the armpits? Can we just get rid of this thing right now? Okay. Well, you have, so you have three kids or four. I'm sorry. I, I, no, I only have two. I have two. You have two. Okay. Um, so you have, you have two kids who are both sports fans as well. Um, your daughter is, says that Bo Jackson is her, uh, inspiration on her college application, um, uh, which may or may not be fully true. Um, half and half. Yeah. Do do your, do your kids think that you're cool for all the, given all the, where you've been in your life as an author, as a sports journalist? I think my daughter more than my son, um, Every time I tell another dad joke, I drop on the scale quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. um, we had a moment um, earlier this year because one of my books became an HBO series, and it was called Winning Time. It was right. based is, on a it, are, is there a sequel to it? We were talking about this earlier. Yeah, it's coming out in uh, next summer. Yeah, They're that's what I thought. That's what I thought. And I took my kids to the premiere party in, in, in Hollywood, and I've probably never been cooler in my life. Like, I've <laughs> never been cooler in my life. That was it. If you, if you do a rate... I was the least cool I've ever been growing up. Like then I was this total nerd, nothing going on, never kissed a girl, blah, 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 snot on my nose, didn't see it was there. The whole thing became a writer, was still uncool, but less cool because it was covering the World Series. But when you hit, when your HBO show, when your book becomes an HBO show, it's just cool. And you're at the premiere party and, you know, you're saying hi to Adrian Brody. (laughs) All of a sudden, all of a sudden you're like, you'll never be cooler than that moment. Right. Um, and that's, of course, the Showtime book about the 80s Lakers, which is winning time on uh, HBO. Um, right. The uh, some of the uh, the brushback on the series um, was kind of harsh. I know that uh, uh, Jerry West wasn't a huge yeah. fan of his portrayal um, to that. Uh, borrowing well, Kareem. I think Kareem had things to say, too. Yeah. But obviously yeah. it's a drama right. dramatization from what you had in the in the printed word. But yeah. Have you ever gotten a significant brushback from one of your subjects in your books? Did you ever hear from Barry oh. Bonds to say, what the hell was that? 
Oh yeah. I mean, all right. So Roger Clemens definitely didn't like my book. And I don't think he read it, but he already tweeted about, I mean, (laughs) the first book I ever wrote, the bad guys won about the 86 Mets. So I was a a young writer. I think I was 30 when it came out, you know, I was nervous and excited. And, and, um, it was a big deal. I was living in New York. They flew me to LA to do the best damn sports show. Do you guys remember that show? Yeah, I do. Oh yeah, I do. All right. They fly me out to LA and they say, you're going to be on it with Ron Darling and Lenny Dykstra. And I'm like, oh, this is great. And I show up at the studio and the producer comes up to me and she's like, so Lenny Dykstra hates the book and he's not going to do it. And I'm like, oh, and then I have to meet Ron Ron Darling because he's there already. And I'm thinking, well, this is going to be awkward. And Ron comes up to me and he's like, Jeff, you nailed it. You nailed it. You nailed it. You nailed it. (laughs) Did it perfect. Great job on the book. And it was such a sigh of relief. But yeah, you do this long enough. I mean, I'm sure Bo Jackson he already tweeted the other day. He tweeted, he hasn't read the book or seen the book, but he basically said, if it's not, if I didn't write the book, it's just someone trying to make money off my name. And, um, wow, really? I'm not mad. I'm not mad. I, I get it from a vantage point, but I turned to my wife and I said, so no one's allowed to write a Donald Trump book, but Donald Trump, and no one can write an Obama book, but Barack Obama, and no one can write, um, pick any celebrity or any famous a Joe Biden book, but Joe Biden, like, History can only be told by the individuals. We cannot report anything. That's a very skewed way of looking at history. And you, you, you kind know? of uh, built Bo into that type of per- – I mean like his whole aversion to uh, signing autographs was people were making money off of his – uh, off of his signature, you, you go in the whole thing with the baseball card, where he comes in and wants yeah. the card back and all that stuff. Oh uh, yeah, and uh, so I, I, uh, I mean, I could see that that seems to be an overriding theme in his life that somebody's just making money off me. But I also always say, when I really mean this, um, I never begrudge anyone for not talking to me. And I mean, if I'm being realistic, like you're Bo Jackson, you're living your life, you're happy whatever. And some guy reaches out to you and you don't know him. He doesn't know me. And Hey, I'm Jeff Perlman. I'm, I'm going to write a biography of your life. Oh, so how much are you going to pay me? Well, I'm not going to pay you. Oh, all right. But, but, um, why have final say on what goes in the book? No, not only do we not have final say, you can't even read the book beforehand. All right. But are there things I can ask you not to put in there? No, you actually can't do that. Like I get if you're him, why you're like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want any part of this. Like right. I get it. Biography right. is complicated, you know, it right. is. When you, um, compare and contrast the process and mindset of writing about a single person versus an era of time. So you, you, you have this book about Bo Jackson writing about his entire life versus what it was like writing Showtime or writing the bad guys one about the 86 Mets, just kind of what are the biggest differences in your mindset and your process when you're writing about a single individual versus an era of time or a team? So I very much prefer doing an individual because, um, there's a lot of diversity to it. Like, uh, this book takes me from rural Alabama to campus, Alabama, to Kansas city in the earth, to Memphis, actually to Kansas city. Like the stages are very dramatic shifts in a person's life. Um, and I find that refreshing. Like every time there's a new stage, I'm excited to dive into the new stage. So he leaves the Royals and he's on the White Sox. So I'm excited to go dive into the White Sox and that culture and what it's like Chicago early nineties. Um, and that, the the complication of writing about a team, especially like the bad guys one was just one season. So that's not so bad, but like writing about like Showtime covers, you know, covers, uh, 1979 to 1991. And there are only so many ways you can write about that game against Seattle or that game against Portland. Right. And right. the Lakers won the championship. Oh, they won it again. Then they won it again. Magic and bird. Like the problem is what, what the, the challenge is keeping it fresh and finding new characters and new angles as you go along. It's a lot harder with team books. Were some of those books early in your writing career as an author? Is it something where they, they was assigned to you the way that an article would have been assigned to you early in your in your journalist career? No, um, I can tell you my first book, an agent had the idea and asked me if I thought it was a good idea. And I said, yeah, I think that's a great idea. So it wasn't my idea. And then um, my third book about the 90s Cowboys was called Boys Will Be Boys. And um, 
that book was a friend of a friend's idea. He's like, tell Perlman he should write about the 90s Cowboys. Ended up writing about the 90s Cowboys. But I've never had a book assigned to me. Um, I've had ideas, a lot of ideas suggested over the years, uh, some of which I've used, but never assigned. Right, 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 right. You've spent two years with Bo Jackson in, in a certain way. Um, mm-hmm. I get, you know, this is kind of simplistic, dare I say cliche, but what is your favorite anecdote that you covered in this book? Oh man, there's so many. I mean, as far as sort of uh, mythology goes, I mean, I guess there are two. One is, this is simple, I get into it deeper in the book. He's such a ridiculous athlete. As a senior in high school, he won the Alabama State Decathlon Championship, was so far ahead, he didn't have to run the 1500, the final event, which he really didn't want to run. So he wins the State Decathlon Championship, suffers an ankle sprain. The next day, his baseball team has a playoff game. He hasn't pitched a game all year. Coach needs a starter, starts Bo Jackson, he strikes out 13 and gets the win, which is ridiculous in and of itself. Like, he literally went from winning the state to Cathlon on a sprained ankle to pitching a 13 strikeout complete game win in the only game he pitched that year. But the thing I love, there's one I really love is he gets to college. This is a sports one. He gets to college. He's a junior. Um, Auburn is playing the first night game at, at Georgia, University of Georgia. They finally got lights in the stadium and Auburn's their first game. And Auburn's their first game because Bo Jackson. He's the draw. Bo versus, you know, there's always comparisons to Herschel Walker and Bo, so he's a natural enemy. And um, first night game's a huge deal. They have lots of dignitaries there. Vince Dooley, the football coach, the athletic director for Georgia, is there. Uh, they bring out an alum to throw out the first pitch. The, the pep band plays glory, glory, hallelujah. Um, everything. And Auburn takes the field, and the fans are just heckling Bo Jackson nonstop. They're just riding him from behind the right field fence. Uh, they grew all these kudzu vines there and they called it kudzu hill and fans would sit there and they would get wasted drinking beer and just ride opposing players. So Bo Jackson's taking it. His first at bat, he grounds out. Fans just give him hell. Jogs back out to the outfield. They're giving him hell. Second at bat, he hits a shot off a pitcher named Larry Lyons that hits the lights. Like actually hits the lights. And this is the first game with lights ever in the stadium. Um, this is 39 days before the natural comes out. I was going to say, this is, this is like right out of the natural. <laughs> this is a head of schedule. This is a yeah, head of schedule. Right. He, he hits the lights. He jogs back out to the outfield and the same fans who are riding him stand and start bowing in unison at Bo Jackson. He, his next two at bats, he hits two more home runs. And, um, in his final at bat, he doubles and the fans boo him. <laughs> It almost seems like it might have been promotional material for the natural when it was on its way. Oh, out. totally. And I just want I really want to say something like he just was a guy of moments. Like when he led off the 89 All-Star game, Ronald Reagan and Vince Scully are calling the game in the booth. Um, you know, like when he runs over the Boz on Monday night football, well, that's the two marquee rookies in the NFL at this singular moment in time with millions and millions and millions of people watching this game on Monday night football. Like Big moments were really there for him, and he really took them by the horns. Jeff, I'm I'm going to ask you something. That's, I don't mean this to sound as difficult as it may sound, but in reference to the the book, The Natural, uh, or I guess the movie as well, the you call uh, Bo Jackson a natural athlete. That and show how he, he really didn't work at it, you know, that much. He didn't work out that much. Uh, in preparation for football games, he just wanted to know who they were playing. Um, you, you talk about how he couldn't have been a, a coach because he really had no uh, interest in the, the kind of the mechanics of the game. Uh, in the same sense, and, and I understand that, but in the same sense, I think uh, George Will in, in Minute Work said that uh, referring to someone as a natural athlete is a naturally racist thing to do. That, uh, you know, Willie Mays was always called a natural athlete, whereas uh, Mickey Mantle supposedly worked at his game and everything. It's probably the other way around. Um, do you, I mean, how, how do you, I mean, and I, I agree with you, it seems like Bo Jackson was the natural, but do you see any kind of racist aspect to that? First of all, that's a great, great question. Like a great question. And I actually am very sensitive to, especially you look back, like I say, I'm not filibustering this question. I have a direct right, answer, right. but like 
you read the Auburn media guides, just as an example, or different SEC media guides from back in the day, and still today in a lot of ways. And every black athlete is naturally gifted, right. speedster, blah, blah, blah. And every white guy is gritty, hard-nosed, driven. A you know, gym like, rat. A gym rat. Like the great example is, I mean, the Sports Illustrated cover in 1985, where Sports Illustrated decides Joe Dudek of Plymouth State to win the Heisman Trophy <laughs> over Bo Jackson. And Joe Dudek was everything. He was a New Hampshire, you know, um, tiny, undersized, white gym rat who, you know, dogged and hard nose. So, like, that's definitely there. And I'm very, very, very acutely sensitive to that. I just think sometimes, and this transcends race, it's actually true. Like, he was a naturally gifted athlete. There's no doubt about it. I talked to a million people, white, black, old, young, about him in football, and he would sleep in meetings, and he didn't lift weights, and it just came naturally to him. In baseball, from George Brett to Frank White to Willie Wilson to pick your guy, man, if that guy had worked harder, or if right, that guy right. had paid attention, or if that guy studied. Now, what's interesting is it changes when he gets to the White Sox, and he has an artificial hip. And all of a sudden, he's in a pool every day. He's on the bike every day. He's lifting weights. And he really, I wrote about this in a book. He discovered what it was like to be a guy fighting for a job. Oh, I, And that I, changed his outlook. I, and you make that clear when, like, even when he's going to the Angels and things later on, he's asking the question, do I get the job? Uh, because he was in search of it. And it does seem like in the book you there's almost a metamorphosis with uh Bo Jackson you know good hip bad hip uh he seems to be more in tune uh to seems to be a happier person uh you know the second half of the book uh I don't know if that's true but uh, oh yeah 100 million percent 100 million percent he was happier being a member of the White Sox than the member of the Royals. Right, right. Uh, oh, yeah, what he does for Carlton Fisk, you know, uh, when Fisk oh, yeah. is screwed. I mean, that, that was, you know, that's that's like the kind of guy you want to be around. Uh, also, on- like, not for nothing, he's just, a, he is a decent human being. Like, there are things about him. I mean, again, he's, he's gruff and he's moody and he's ornery and he's hard to approach. He also paid for a bunch of the funerals for the Uvalde shooting victims, uh, shooting. Right. Like, and he did it quietly. It got out, but it wasn't like he was issuing a press release. Like he, every year he does his charity, Bo Bikes Bama, has right, raised, right. you know, a ton of money. Like inside a rough exterior beats a very decent heart. I just think like he grew up with his dad living cross town and having almost nothing to do with him and raising his own family. He grew up with a severe stutter. He grew up as poor as poor could be. He grew up hungry. He grew up without shoes. He grew up wearing hand-me-downs, and he never forgot that. Like, he never forgot that, and those things definitely drove him, and I think they still drive him to this day. Like, he definitely has a, a bone of empathy in him that runs deep to Bessemer. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that my uh, my mother is from Birmingham, and so when I was telling her about reading your book and, and all the allusions to Bessemer and that that's where Bo Jackson is from, she, she lit up. She can't wait to read it um, oh, nice. as well. Um, and, and I'm here to please mothers. I'm here to please mothers. <laughs> Aren't well, we all? Right, and, <laughs> and and very well. So you you dedicate this book to your mom. So that is true. That's yeah. an excellent choice there. Always part of this book. I mean, one of the overarching themes, and in fact, you know, the title, uh, "The Last Folk Hero." How Bo Jackson exists in a time right before everything is documented, um, and that's what makes it so interesting. And and the the mystery of did this really happen or not? These stories that are told and that you've found and uncovered and and so on and so forth. But knowing Bo Jackson as a person, do you think that he would have flourished in this era, in the social media sports era? If you took the same upbringing, the same childhood experience and just moved it forward 20 years, does he have the same career or anything like it? I mean, I think he was so, he was such a great athlete that I think performance-wise, sure. But I, you know, it's funny because he and Dion were two sports stars and they crossed over. And Dion really was made for this era and this age. Oh, yeah. You even see it with him coaching at Jackson State. Like his Instagram feed is wildly popular and wildly entertaining. Um, Bo Jackson is not. Bo Jackson's social media is pretty boring and and, and stoic and stilted. And um, 
he probably has someone do it for him for all I know, like probably like he's not that guy. So I think the thing is like Mike Trout isn't either. Mike Trout's super boring on social media and he's not that injured. He doesn't say very much. You can thrive in this era and not be social media savvy. So I, he'd still be great at what he did, but he wouldn't be a dynamic presence online. You know what, but you know, in terms of being great at what he did, uh, you kind of established in a book, he really didn't do that much. He did, had, he had those moments, you know, that you, that you talk about, you know, the, uh, the Ruthian home runs and the throws, uh, you know, nailing Harold Reynolds and all that stuff. These were feats that people didn't do. Uh, as Billy Ripken says, no, a human doesn't do that. Uh, but he, he doesn't compile great seasons at anything. Well, yeah, that's true. And I mean, he would have been football. If he was playing four seasons, you would yes. have been a guy running for 1500 yards. Right. I agree. And, Baseball, he was just really raw, like really, really raw. And he had some great – he would always fall off in the second half. The Royals always thought it was because he was looking towards football. I don't know if that's true or not. It might be. Um, he never was a consistently great baseball player. He right. was a dynamic baseball player, and he did a lot of great things. But, you know, he didn't move runners over. He didn't – for his speed, he didn't steal many bases. He struck out way too often. Um he never played in a World Series. He never played in a Super Bowl. He uh, he appeared in one All-Star game and one Pro Bowl, and that was it. This is the obvious what-if question, but let's say the hip injury does not occur. What do you think is the um, the outcome of his career? Is he Does he eventually just pick one of the two sports, and does he become uh, an All-Pro, an All-Star, a, a perennial All-Star, or a Hall of Famer? I mean, his plan was to play one more year of football. So he, he suffered the injury in the 91 playoff game against the Bengals. His plan was to play the 91 season with the uh, Raiders and then devote himself fully to baseball. Um, I think if he had played, if he had done that, you know, he goes down as a great football player who didn't have enough numbers for the Hall of Fame just because he didn't play enough. And I think in baseball, he's Sean Green or like Raul Mondesi. You know, he's not. Right, right, yeah. He's not an all-time, all-time great, but he's kind of Kirk Gibson. He's an all-time, all-time really, really freaking good, you know? Um, but I don't know. Maybe if, he, if maybe if he quits the NFL, he would devote more time to studying baseball. He'd get sharper. His senses would get a little better. His instincts would get a little tighter. And maybe he would be Dave Winfield. It's hard to say. Right, right. Um, is there anything that I haven't asked you or Coach hasn't asked you that you want to talk about real quick? Because I know, I know you have to run soon, so... No, you guys have been insanely thorough, and this has been really enjoyable. These questions are amazing. Well, I got These to... have been the best questions I've had so far, for real. Oh, good. Oh, thank you. Uh, I want to ask something else. That who was the biggest enemy in his life? He had you, you talk about Culverson, and you talk about Primetime and Seitzer and all these people, Sherholtz even. Uh, who do you think was the biggest uh, public enemy? I, I, I'm not forget his father, uh, you know, and that sort of thing. I mean, like uh, a sports related enemy. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, he really disliked Kevin Seitzer. Right. <laughs> but more in the way, more in the way you dislike the neighbor's, who, neighbor's dog who's out in the yard. Yeah, who just doesn't shut up. Yeah, right. Right, just shut up. Please shut up. Stop. I hear you talking and I want you to stop it now. Like that was basically Kevin right. Seitzer to him. Um, I mean, enemy on the field, if you were going to go like, who is his rival? In a way, it'd be Bosworth, but he vanquished him. Yeah, it didn't take um, long. Yeah, it did not take long. <laughs> um, he didn't have a ton. Like, he didn't... He wasn't hated. He um, he was really mad at John Sherholtz, the Royals general manager. I mean, you know, where he was really misguided is he basically, the Royals signed him to, a, I think it was a $2 million deal right before he... After he gets hurt in a football game, but it's not guaranteed before a certain date. So basically, they're saying, we'll sign you this contract as long as you're healthy, you'll make this money. And he comes to spring training on crutches. Right. And that's not a good look. And he's on crutches. And the Royals team doctor basically can, you know, confers with the Royals and says, this guy is, this hip is damaged. It's, it's, it's rotting away. And the Royals release him. And Bo Jackson is furious at the Royals. He feels disrespected and disregarded and cast aside. And John Sherrill, it's a GM. His philosophy basically is, bro, we told you we didn't want you playing football. You didn't listen. You played football. You got hurt. That's not our fault. 
And he was right. Like John Charles was 100% right. We told you not to play football. You played football. You got hurt. We're not paying you $2 million to be on crutches. And like a lot of athletes, Bo used the whole, you know, coming back with the White Sox, I'm going to get revenge on the Royals. But I don't really know what else the Royals were supposed to do. They told him not to play football. He played football. He got hurt. And they released him. It was a wise right, business right. decision. And it sure yeah. holds uh, also, I mean, you know, he said his worst decision as the Atlanta Braves GM was bringing in primetime. Uh, he was not a fan of two sport athletes. That's uh, very interesting. I mean, I think he liked Bo. I think he, I mean, Bo was a great investment for them. First of all, sure. it was only a fourth round pick. You know, right, right. Uh, Art Stewart, the scouting director, said it's not going to kill our franchise. The franchise isn't going to fold if we use a fourth-round pick on Bo and he doesn't sign. They right. use a fourth-round pick. He was a gate attraction times a million. He was super exciting. He was really fun. He was a good player. So, like, it certainly worked out for the Royals. It was not a bad investment sure, for Kansas City. Sure. Yeah. Gave them all yeah. kinds of good press, too. Yeah, and every – I mean, think of it this way. Every Nike ad with Bo Jackson had him in a Kansas City Royal uniform. Yeah, so that's absolutely. free advertising. Right. Nationally. Right. Yeah. Bo knows. Bo knows. Bo does know. Uh, Jeff, this has been awesome. Uh, really appreciate you coming on. Uh, and truly an honor. Um, because again, you are one of those last name authors now where someone's just like, oh, in the Perlman book, dot, dot, dot. Um, I, I just want wait. I want to say to you, you say that, and I love that. And it's very kind of you. When my, uh, when winning time, the TV show was being made, they had a, uh, they had a trailer for me because I got to be an extra one day. They had a trailer for me and I pull up in that parking spot. They have a VIP parking spot for me and they misspelled my name every time. <laughs> so I might be one name, but it's maybe without a couple of letters. <laughs> what were you, Peelman? <laughs> right. What were the misspellings? I was P-E-R-L. Perlman without the A. Perlman without the A. Oh, man. I, I, we could talk about this a long, a longer time, but I, I'm a, uh, I was a production assistant out of college and, uh, and I would have made sure it was spelled correctly. So ah, where were you when I needed it? It was more yeah, funny yeah. this way though. The story's better. The story's yeah. better with the misspelled name. I have that sign hanging in my office, so it's good. Nice. Nice. Um, are you, by the way, so they're going, they're doing a second season of winning time. Um, are you going to be more involved uh, creatively on the second season than you were in the first? Yeah, I actually am. I'm a, uh, I'm listed as a producer this season, which doesn't mean that much, but um, <laughs> yeah, I right. tell you, and uh, I read yeah. all the scripts. I've, I've been involved in like, they send me all the casting as my opinion on the different casting choices. You know, it's not, I'm not like day to day and I don't pretend to be, but they've been very gracious and have kept me in the loop and asked me questions about accuracy and, integrity of sourcing and stuff like that. So it's been cool. And I get to, I get a cameo again in this season. Yeah, well, maybe they'll do a documentary on the last folk hero. Right. Right. Well, yeah, I'm sorry. I got to get one more in. Cause I, I, I had this written down. Um, Showtime becomes winning time of your other works, which do you think could become a, a limited series or a, um, or a dramatic retelling well, HBO bought the rights to my second Laker book, uh, Three Ring Circus, about Shaq Obiera, with the thoughts that, you know, maybe, possibly, possibly, maybe they continue the series after the Magic era ends with the Shaq Obiera. So that's probably the most likely. But the, everything is a long shot in Hollywood. Yeah, I'm just happy they're doing a second season. Right. That's true. That's true. It'll yeah. be hard to cast a Shaq. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but they cast a magic in a Korean. Right, right, so. right, right. Yeah. And uh, those were good. Uh, uh, Larry Bird kind of looked like Larry Bird in the thing. Oh, yeah. He's awesome. Sean Patrick Small, he's awesome. All right. Well, the author, of course, Mr. Jeff Perlman, the title of the book is The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. You can find it on Amazon. Um, do you have a book tour coming up that you can pitch Jeff, now? Just in Alabama. Four bookstores in Alabama. That's it. All right. And uh, your podcast is called Two Writers Sling and Yang. Um, just, uh, again, really appreciate you coming on the show. It's This has been great. Uh, thank you so much for having me. You guys are great. I thanks, Jeff. It. All right. Take care. All right. Our thanks to Jeff Perlman. Um, it's great to be back. Coach, it's good to see you again, man. Yeah, yeah. It's good to be here. Yeah, yeah. Glad to be seen. <laughs> it's good to be seen or heard, I guess, rather, is more to the point. Uh, we've been off for a year, but what better way to uh, to get back on the on the air, so to speak? Just real quick before uh, before we get out of here, you want to give a, a World Series prediction? As of this recording, we've got 
Phillies, Padres in the NL, and then Yankees and Astros in the AL. What's your World Series pick? Uh, Astros to win uh, it all. Yes, I, I, you know, actually, I, I hate to say this. I really hate to say this, but uh, right now. Of the teams that are left, I'm kind of pulling for the Phillies. I've never pulled for the Phillies in my life at anything, but the, <laughs> uh, I don't even like their uniforms. Uh, I, I like the fanatic. That's about it. Uh, but, but, great city, though. It's a great city. Right. Brotherly love. Rocky, and, and, I, and I like the way their, their fans are just so over over the top right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a hell of a sports city. Yes, You got to give them to that. And, I don't, and they're doing well right now in all, you know, all – all sports, all phases. I, I don't know if the infrastructure of this country could handle if uh, Philly has two champions in a in a calendar year, but it may very well happen. I don't know if Philly can handle it. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I, I my pick is that it's going to be Astros Phillies, but um, I, I would I, I'm, I'm I like the San Diego team a lot. I like I like the way that that crowd has been uh, during this postseason. So well, they've had the hardest road to get there. Yeah, yeah, definitely NL. I'll be pulling for the NL. I just Yankees and Astros. I can't do it. I am same way. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you to everyone who listens to the Running the Basis podcast, which you can find on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Store, wherever you get your podcasts, your service of choice. Um, you can find all things Running the Basis at our website, runningthebases.com. Uh, follow us on Instagram at running the bases and on Twitter at running the base. I keep trying to get Twitter to give me running the bases plural because that no one they're not using that account. Maybe Elon Musk can help me out there. I don't know. At any rate, our thanks again to Mr. Jeff Perlman for Coach Jordan Bounds. I am Tucker Wells. This is the Running the Bases podcast. Good to be back. We'll talk to you again soon. 